Hello. Welcome to MusicCast. My name is CJ Cox, and this podcast is a production of the Foundation for New American Musicals. On this episode, I'm going to talk to E.L. Lasada about how he came of age doing theater in Miami and how his heritage as a Cuban-American immigrant helped inform his portrayal of one of the most iconic figures from the golden age of television. But first, we're going upstairs before the Foundation's presentation of Musical to talk to Laura Watkins and Nicholas David Brandt about how reacting to current events inspired them to write their musical, Glass Ceilings. Well, first of all, tell me a little bit about how you guys, um, how you guys started writing. Um, well, he and I have worked together before on Comic-Con the Musical, so um, it was a great writing relationship, and we knew we wanted to write another show together, and this was... What happened? Glass ceilings. Um, and how? Uh, tell me a little bit about the show. What's the subject matter? Um, we kind of thought of it as assassins, but feminist. It um, basically follows two storylines. One is um, ladies who have passed on and they live in purgatory, <laughs> and um, then down on earth, there's um, a, a woman candidate for president. She's the first female in, uh, to be chosen by a major party. And um, her name is the senator. And so the ladies in Hergatory are watching as she tries to break the glass ceiling. Each of them in Hergatory has either broken or failed to break a glass ceiling. So they're watching her. And as, uh, as they watch her, the ladies sort of recount the moment that sent them to Hergatory. Uh, very interesting and very topical also. Um, what was it that appealed to you about, about this particular story? I think that it was interesting and topical. I think mm-hmm. that... There, it was a compensating for the, the pain and frustration that we were all feeling in today's world mm-hmm. and wanting to say something about it, but say something that was somewhat timeless that wouldn't just appeal to today's world that will last beyond the current feeling in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Just there were so many articles and people talking, and it just was, like, like Nick said, so topical that it was just running through our minds, and it just suddenly seemed like a great idea for a show. How long have you been working on it? Since April, probably. I think I I maybe wrote my first song in April, but we came up with the idea maybe in March. Yeah. We, were, we were putting on another show at the time, so we didn't really dig our heels in until the summer. Okay. How far along are you with the project? Hmm. We have it sketched out, uh, and Laura's written a lot of awesome songs, and we've just been waiting until some of the stuff that's been going on with our other musical project has died down so that we could sit down and just hammer out the rest of it. All right. Now, this other musical project that you're talking about is Comic-Con the Musical. The other musical project is Comic-Con the Musical. Okay. Uh, And you've presented songs from that uh, at previous music halls. Tell us a little bit about that and what's going on with that. Well, um, that's more of a comedy. <laughs> As you can imagine, uh, Glass Ceilings it has funny moments, but it's more uh, focused on the, the real drama of the situation. Uh, Comic-Con the Musical, we've done some black box presentations of it uh, in total, and right now we're working on what's next specifically. We're hoping to work something around a Comic-Con to coincide with one of the Comic-Cons. Uh, but we just finished phase one of Apple's and Orange's Theater Accelerator. And so literally this past Friday, a couple days ago, we live pitched Comic-Con the Musical to Facebook and BroadwayWorld.com. Ah. Now, Apple's and Orange's, is this, uh, is this in Orange County? Um, they're they're I, located in uh, Orange County and New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, but you're both based in Los Angeles? 
Yeah. Where are you guys from originally? Now, I noticed your buffalo tattoo, so... I have a buffalo tattoo on my arm. My uh, sister bought it for me, so I'd never forget where I come from. So I'm from Buffalo, New York. I have a Phoenix tattoo, but I'm not from Phoenix. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm from Florida. I'm from the FLA. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, what, what is the inspiration for... The phoenix. Rising from the ashes. I think I got it right after like some bad news, like nymph turned me down further. Now have you always um have you always written music? Um, how old were you when you started and did you study uh, yeah, I um I went to I, I've always been I was a classical pianist. I went to college for classical piano and then I was writing songs. I wanted to write musicals at that point, and so I, I started writing this musical called The Scarlet Pimpernel, and um, then I took a trip to New York, and this was before Google, and I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, then I, I got derailed. I was, I was in a band, and for, for a few years, I was concentrating on my band and songwriting, and then I started writing for musical theater again, and, and I wrote a children's musical, and then, because uh, I had a kid, and then I, uh, started working with Nick. Okay. Now, how did you guys... Uh, and Nick, what, first of all, what's your background? Uh, my background, I, I went to school for film studies, but uh, before that, back in high school, I was the lead in two high school musicals, and I really wanted to be involved in them, and I realized that I really didn't want to be rejected as an actor, so <laughs> I didn't see that being my life path. Uh, so creating a musical was always on my bucket list, but I can basically sing pretty decently, and play this much they can't see, but like a little over a centimeter's worth of guitar. Uh, so that was always something that I wanted to do, but I wasn't capable of doing. And then Laura lured me in because she had uh, uh, like two or three songs written for this nebulous musical about nerds. And she, and she says like she specifically wrote them so that she could bring me into the project as her resident nerd and uh, a screenwriter. Yeah. So I really did not want to write the book it was, it was just something I really didn't want to do. Okay. So then the idea for it taking place at Comic-Con, where all of these nerddoms come together, kind of got the genesis in, in when she brought those songs to me. And, yeah, and then magic happened. And then okay. we wanted to write more. I want to hear how you met. But first, I want to hear your nerd credentials. Like, oh. Um, how long you been, got? I, yeah. <laughs> well... Actually, um, I've been reading comic books since the Mutant Massacre and Uncanny X-Men, so I was about 12. Uh, I also read like a couple Swamp Things from my older cousin, which gave me nightmares, but I couldn't put them down. I actually hid them in my closet when I went to sleep, so that they wouldn't haunt So they wouldn't get you? Okay. Uh, and I've been going to, uh, like my first um, actual Comic-Con was in Buffalo, back where I'm from, and I remember it was the, the premiere issue that Gambit joined the team like the introduction of Gambit to the X-Men universe. And then ever since I've moved out here, I've been going to San Diego Comic-Con. I'm a, I'm a, I read basically everything. I, uh, I'm on Marvel Unlimited. I'm on Comixology Unlimited. I, if you ask me, I will always tell you what comic book you should be reading. <laughs> and I try to, to foist that upon other people. So okay. a big comic book background. Love Doctor Who. Love Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, basically, anything you can nerd out about, I nerd out about it. All right, that's uh, that's that's some pretty serious uh, nerd credentials. <laughs> well, did that answer your question? And now, Laura, you said that you brought him in. And now, how did you? Were you aware of his work before, or how did you guys? You know, I've known Nick for a long time, just through a mutual friend. 
and um, I was writing, I just had this, envisioned this play about nerds. And so we were out with a mutual friend, and we were all going to go to Cheesecake Factory, and Nick's like, I can't go because there's comic book stores opening, and I have to be there at 8 in the morning. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I believe that was a free comic book day. Yeah, well, it was. And so I, you left, and I was like, Drew, could you try to, you know, he and I don't know each other that well, could you try to hook us up because he might just be the nerd I'm looking for. And, it, uh, and Drew that... did, and, and here we are. And right. for that, Drew is immortalized as one of the characters in Comic-Con the Musical. One of them is called Drew. Oh, yeah. uh, very nice. Okay. Uh, they have nothing like Drew. Mm-hmm. Just name. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what, okay, so now your show tonight, um, how many songs are you presenting? Four. We have four songs mm-hmm. for tonight. Um, and what is your what is your writing process? Do you guys um, do, how do you how do you guys work? Do you have do you have a solid schedule? Do you kind of just come I, up with ideas? I write songs and I send them to Nick, and we just what for this for glass ceilings. Well, we kind of brainstormed the idea. Yeah, we, we we came up with the overarching story and the idea of the two worlds and how we would see it staged in our heads before anything was written. Yeah. So that was there. And then she started investigating, like, who would I want to write about in Purgatory? Who, who inspires me? Exactly. And so she's been working on that. Uh, so the overarching structure is in place. The idea of how we would stage it is in place. And then she starts writing. And then, uh, yeah. so that, that process is kind of different because the show's kind of different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For Comic Con the Musical, um, we literally sat down and beaded out what the character arcs would be. I see. Now, um, for for this, now the women who are in Hurgatory, are they actual um, historical figures? Yes, they're all historical figures who have passed on. Can you tell us who they are? Sure, I can tell you who some of them are because we mm-hmm. haven't one thousand percent. Oh, for tonight. Okay. Yeah, for tonight. Um, well, Sybil uh-huh. Ludington is one of the ladies, and she's um, Paul Revere. You know, rode his midnight ride. He rode for twelve miles. Um, Sybil Ludington also made a midnight ride and rode for 46 miles. However, you know, she's not, she has an episode of Drunk History, actually, but that's kind of what she has. You can see, because the look on your face, radio listeners, podcast (laughs) listeners, was shocked. And you probably are also thinking, who is that person? Well, she was a 16-year-old girl, and she she did it. So her story was was pretty awesome. Um, Sally Ride, the first American Mm -hmm. lady in space. Um, I do. I do remember her. Um, well, <laughs> she she had a. I, I mean, life. fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I'm seeking ladies who all have a different kind of story to tell. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to get an MD, uh, is one of the ladies in this story. Um, yeah, Madam C.J. Walker. She was the first um, self-made millionaire. Um, Sacagawea has a song that I may or may not cut. I don't know. Okay. Um, who else do I have in there? Oh, well, then there's songs from the senator. Right. Who, you know, there's a lot of songs from the senator. And, and then there's going to be more ladies in, in her gatory. I still... Because the senator's storyline is set in present Modern, yeah. day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so... Very inspired by real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and... So how much, well, and it's it's funny because real life these days is so rapidly changing and, and mm-hmm. there are so many, so many events that just every week it's something new, it seems like. Yeah. So how do you, 
How do you balance the desire to be topical, but also you can't keep up with everything that's going on? So how do you no. how do you do that? The story that we're writing is basically ending with election night, and then with a promise of what may lie ahead. So anything that's happened post the election night in this particular story would only be a this is what we work towards um, and it would be the Hergatorians and the people in the election just kind of um, coming to a realization that there's always you know there's you got to keep on trucking you know because I think there's a lot of people out there that had to explain to their children like oh we thought that there was going to be history made and it didn't quite turn out how we wanted it to although I think that there is being history made just perhaps not the history that we would have that a lot of people would have liked and I think that that feeling's not really going to go away like that people are going to understand that feeling and I think that it's tangible and (laughs) this is taking a moment to reflect how we feel as a society and how we can hopefully move on move past it grow and ultimately break some glass ceilings although that's an interesting um interesting prospect and I guess I would like your your feelings on that as to do you feel that you have taken this on as sort of a catharsis is is there mm-hmm. some sort of um, or how how much do you deal with your own personal emotions and kind of working through those as a um, oh, in your art yeah, so much so much because um when I mean, as a woman, when you're writing about women overcoming things and being doubted and having to work, it's very um, personally moving. I'm sure it would be personally moving for anybody because everybody has tried to do something and been, been told that they can't. But but anyway, it is it is. Um, I do take it personally, and then the character of the senator. Um, that was kind of a catharsis when I like wrote her song at the end, which is you know reflecting on the the life of a woman in politics, and the song is called Perfect, and um, you know how she has to she's basically had to always be perfect, but it still didn't matter because you know she still didn't she still didn't uh, accomplish what she set out to accomplish. Uh, is that a spoiler? No. no. <laughs> and, and that's going to be the the song that we're closing our uh, four song set with today, and. Honestly, even in rehearsals, the song kind of makes me cry a little bit, ah. just because it it's poignant. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard not to feel anything, or like really deep when you're listening to that. And do you feel this sort of keeps you more tied into current events, or do you feel like this this helps you sort of process them? Both. It keeps me tied in because. Um, I guess I would say we've both been reading a lot more feminist literature. I mean, we were huge feminists to begin with before undertaking this project, but I would say that I wasn't necessarily reading a women's studies book every week before, you know, leading up to this project. So, um, Well, so that's interesting. I mean, how do you... Uh, how do you dive into research? I mean, because I think that there are so many, mm-hmm. so many women throughout history. Totally. I mean, yeah. just picking, finding women who perhaps have been overlooked or perhaps are famous, but Both. their story yeah. is untold. Um, kind of, where do you start with that? I, we would Google a lot. Like I would Google things like um, 
women who did something better than a man but weren't known for it and names would come up or yeah, like the first, Matilda effect. Yeah, like, like the Matilda did effect. Did you know that before you Googled or No, I didn't. Um, fascinating term. Yeah, the Matilda effect is ladies in science who are overlooked and snubbed for the Nobel Prize and, and such. Um, one of the songs we have is just four scientists singing together about how they were, they just kind of each give their story. But um, yeah, so I've learned a lot from that. And also, um, I would Google things like first woman to get an MD, first woman to do something in sports, first woman to X in the military. Um, you know, just trying to just get ideas that way. So. And the the, the thing is, it's there's not a, a dearth of stories to be told, and it's actually it's hard to almost cherry pick what's going to work best for the narrative. Exactly. I, that's that was my that was my next question because uh, yeah, I don't think that there you would be lacking for material. So how do you winnow it out? How do you decide which which mm-hmm. stories that you tell? Well, if there's two ladies with a similar story then we probably choose one of them. On, based on? How interesting the story is and how good of a song it would make. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the creative process feels the, the research process and then vice versa. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, what's, uh, after this, what are your next steps? Um, what, are your, what are your plans for the musical? Well, one, we need to finish it. It's still in development. We, we need to come up, we need to finalize our first draft and then then we'll probably workshop it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, hopefully, um, if people want to keep track of you and uh, maybe find out about workshops or, or what you're doing with, uh, with, with your work or Comic-Con the Musical, what's going on with that, um, how, would they, uh, how would they keep in touch with you? Do you have uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook? Uh, what, do you want to... Yeah. We're on all the Facebooks and Twitters. Yeah, all, do you wanna, all of them are ours. Do you want to give us uh, the shout-outs on those? Can you do that, Nick? I forget them all. So uh, I'm Nicholas Brandt on Twitter um, and Comic-Con Musical on Twitter and ComicConMusical.com. And then on Facebook, Comic Con the Musical and Glass Ceilings are both on there. What is your Twitter? It's L Watt Forever. L Watt Forever, yeah. At L Watt Forever. Okay. I think. So L W A T, the number four, E V E R. But if you follow one of the previous ones, uh, I usually like to include her on my tweets when we're talking about the musicals. He's, he's better. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm the more techie, nerdy one of the partnership, as you probably can tell from earlier from our earlier conversation (laughs) uh well that sounds great i'm really looking forward to to hearing what you're presenting tonight and hopefully um following your progress thank you so much for your time well thanks a lot Right now, we're going to listen to one of the songs from Glass Ceilings by Laura Watkins and Nicholas David Brandt. This is Stars. Glimmering 
thank Laura and Nicholas for sharing that track with us. And from there, we are going to a sunny patio in Los Angeles, where, of course, once I started talking to E.L. Lasada, then construction started up next door. But hopefully you will overlook that because I think he's a really interesting guy. So let's talk to E.L. I have a guest today, Uriamus Lasada, uh, who is a singer and actor. And uh, um, how, do you, how do you usually introduce yourself? Well, uh, my you mean my name or my title? Actually, actually, okay, both. Uh, so casually, you go by El, right? Yeah, all my friends call me El because it's a little easier to remember than Uriamus. Okay. <laughs> Uriamus Losada, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, very good job on the pronunciation of that. <laughs> um, uh, I guess I, I don't. You know what? I, it depends on who I'm talking to and what I'm doing, and, and what the conversation is about. Is how I'll, I'll present myself as either a singer, actor, or actor singer. Okay. It kind of it kind of goes back and forth because I I'm just a yeah, which Art which uh, which one of those hyphenates that you present yourself as first? Um, let's get a little background about you. So I understand you were born in Cuba. Uh, yes, I was. I was born in Cuba. Moved to the states when I was six, which okay. is probably why I don't have an exotic accent <laughs> like most people would expect. Grew up in Miami, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent two years in St. Petersburg, which is probably where I learned to speak English at like eight or nine. Um, but I was pretty much raised in Miami and moved out to LA ten years ago. Uh, what was your introduction to theater, and um, how did that how did that come about? In high school, okay. Actually, in high school, I, I did a um, in my tenth grade. My th- we got a new drama teacher that said that was like, no, we need to do productions. We need to do like full productions, full play productions. And uh, and he held auditions, and I auditioned, and he cast me as one of the leads. And it was a comedy, and okay. I fell in love with doing comedy with like that the fact that I. 
if you delivered something the certain way or you did something a certain way and the whole audience would just roar with laughter at what you just did, it, it became this drug. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then I saw a, uh, a program for Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat that was, having, that was happening at the Actors Playhouse, which was like the big regional theater in, uh, in Miami. Uh-huh. And I was just like, wait people do this for a living and they get paid to do this. And I was just like, Oh, I think that's uh, what I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life. Okay. So that's the point at which you just decided, okay, this is it. 10th grade, 10th grade in high school. Okay. Was your family, was your family musical? Uh, What about your parents? Yeah. My father is actually a retired Methodist pastor, um, but he was also a singer and he, and a, a singer songwriter his entire life. And I grew up singing in church. And just grew up, uh, you know, in Spanish, obviously not like gospel, but like singing in church and, and uh, music has always been a part of our family. I was, uh, ironically, I was always the bass because my father always liked to compose harmonies and right. stuff. And I had a very deep register from basically from, from childbirth. Oh, okay. My fir- when, I first, when I first started speaking, I don't know if I was sick or if I was, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but my father said that the first words that came out of my mouth when I said his name, it was Baba. like i just had this like really deep bassy voice and they were like what is wrong with our child and uh, and then as i got older but he put it to good use and yeah he literally made me the bass for every harmonic arrangement that we did as a family okay um and then at some point in my like my early 20s i became a tenor oh and then from from there what was your next step um after high school I started, I started my first year of college um, as a theater major, and I did, I did two productions there, but then I started, then I auditioned, someone told me about these um, auditions for, um, for the Actors Playhouse, they were mm-hmm. doing The King and I, and, uh, and I went and auditioned, and uh, the director cast me in the ensemble, and it was my first, like, paying gig, and then from there, I met other actors that put me, uh, that put me in contact with other directors and other audition, like like regional auditions. And then I started like booking work in South Florida that paid. Okay. And I was like, I'm I'm learning so much doing it, and then I'm paying money to learn to do it. So I kind of like veered off of school and started like kind of like working continuously. Which right. is, you know, is very, very weird and very rare. Mostly, mostly in theater. Mostly in theater. Yeah, I mean, I always had like some kind of a side job because mm-hmm. it's South Florida. It's not like you can just make a living off of it. But you were still getting paid to. Yeah, I was getting. It was a professional the theater. theater, and then I, uh, I, 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 kind of um, made a name for myself, so to speak. I, I won two. I ended up winning two Carbonell Awards uh, two years in a row. Tell me about that. Carbonell award. is a is basic. It's a. I don't know what that like the regional awards are here it's it would be like the tonys but of south florida okay it, it covers three regions and they're like the most at least the, i think i think they still are the kind of the most like the prestigious awards and uh and i won it for best actor in a musical for bat boy when i was 20 okay and then i won it for best actor in a musical again for jekyll and hyde the following year and were you doing leads in both of those yeah i was i was i won it for bat boy for best actor in musical and then i won it for playing both Jekyll and Hyde the following year after that. Okay, so you found that your training in the theater, that being able to work in the theater comprised, I mean, that's a great education. Honestly, yeah, it was really good. But I also, but I also continued to, to further, like, I, I got a private vocal coach um, that worked, that, that, uh, that was one of the professors at the University of Miami, and he, he kind of, like, 
coached me privately um so you know to to continue to strengthen my voice i i, I did a lot of um classical theater i did a lot of uh, shakespeare and um eugene o'neill professionally in a theater called new theater mm-hmm. um under the tutelage of Raphael dacha and kimberly dacha who are the most brilliant people that you could ever hope to talk to and they kind of took me under their wing and cast me in shows that allowed me to like learn iambic pentameter and allowed me to learn um syntax and allowed me to learn um, you know, all these things that you'd kind of learn in school, right. I learned on the job. So I have this incredible appreciation for language and for um, Elizabethan English and, and things that you normally, you don't get to do normally. Exactly. Yeah, that, and that sometimes people will experience that in a classroom situation, but I think it's different actually it's learning so different it. when you perform it, when you bring it to life, when you're bringing this character to life that was just on a page and you, you, it's your responsibility. Do you have favorite roles of that period um, that you played? As far as Shakespeare? Yeah. Um, I loved playing Romeo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> loved playing Romeo. He was... I've now, it's funny, I've now played him several times in different, in different uh, productions. Not of Romeo and Juliet. I've only played Romeo and Juliet once, but then I did this other show, a musical called Romeo and Bernadette, okay. <laughs> which was uh, Mark Saltzman's musical. I don't know if somebody, some people have yeah. heard of him. Yeah. Um, I, that was one of, like, because he's, you know, it's all passion and it's all, like, heart and, like, that resonates with this Cuban Scorpio <laughs> really well. Right. Passion and fighting for something and really want, you know. Um, that, that's, that's probably, and then actually ended up, uh, getting a, a write-up for that on, uh, in Miami New Times. I won Best Actor of Miami for 2000, whatever it was, for that role in particular. Um, that's wonderful. Did you find yourself, there's a niche that you fit into, sort of, uh, the leading man role? Did you find yourself getting cast in, in those kind of roles a lot? Yeah. I, ironically, yes. Yeah. I mean, not, I guess not ironically. Because of, because of how I look, I get, I get put in a certain category, you know what I mean? The handsome, whatever, you know, the okay. guy. And just to, uh, just to feel sorry for you for a minute to get everybody to, to I'm spit my water, <laughs> to be on board. Um, uh, yeah, looks like a Disney prince. Just, to, <laughs> just, just so, so the people, Cuban Disney prince. so people out there can get a, can get a picture. Um, so yes, I'm, I, it must be a curse for you. It's a, no, it's a burden. You don't understand. Um, no, but it, that's never, that's a new, that's like a, I've told, like, my, my, the, from my friends that know me the best, like, know that that's a new thing for me. That's not a, that's not how I live my life. That's not how I, how I like to present myself. I've done, I like to do so much more internal work, mm-hmm. both personally and in character wise, to give that character as much nuance as I could give them. So I can't just stand there and look pretty. Right. You know what Can I mean? You, I do you have an example of, for example, uh, let's say a character role that you would love to play that you feel that mm-hmm. people wouldn't cast you in? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, okay. I would love my kind of like my dream situation would uh-huh. be to do a production with uh, some other incredibly talented and versatile actor of A Gentleman's Guide yeah. where we could switch roles. Okay. You know what I mean? Where I could play the lead one night and then play the other guy, the, uh, the one that plays all the millions of characters. Switch it off in, yeah. in repertory or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In like, a, in like some kind of a rep situation. I feel like that would be such an amazing challenge because then on one hand, you've got 
all those characters that that one character plays, and then the other, and then the next night you have to be this like ha- list, the the dashing leading man that also has to is conflicted and ha- you know what I mean. I love, I would love that kind of a challenge. That would you know? be that would be really fun. What are some of the favorite roles that you've played? Um, uh, and and musicals. Let's let's talk about some of some of those. Edgar the Bat Boy. Mm, yeah, that is hands down. I think one of the most phenomenal roles ever written for men uh-huh. is the the arc that they give that he has. You know, if you really if you really play Edgar like too like really you know don't, don't uh, let everyone else play the camp. Let everyone else play the over the top. If right. you play him as everything is one hundred percent life or death, yeah, it it is such a rewarding payoff. When, with all this craziness going on around him and all this camp and all this right. like over the top stuff, if, he, if his story is real and, 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 and means something to you, it'll mean something to the audience, even though they're laughing, even though they're, you know, because it's, it's a tragedy at the end, you know, at the, exactly, end, yeah. at the end it's tragedy. And, and there's, and we, I don't know, that's, I would, that was one of the most fulfilling roles. And I wish, I probably won't get to do it again at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm into my thirties now, but it was so rewarding to get to do that. I had, ju- I had just turned 20 oh. when I, when I, in re- during in rehearsals, actually, in uh, rehearsals for that show, I was doing. So you were 19 when you were cast. Yeah, I was 19 when I was cast and I was doing, at night, <clears throat> I was doing Long Day's Journey into Night and then during the day rehearsing, rehearsing for Bat Boy. So I was <laughs> coughing up, a, literally coughing up a lung every <laughs> night and then singing crazy high notes in the, in the, in the morning. So what did you do? Technique-wise, to protect your voice, to make sure that you could... Actually, that's how I met my, uh, my vocal coach. Um, because up until that point, I was, a, um, I was considered myself like a baritone. Mm-hmm. Um, because I could kind of belt, maybe to a G, on good days. On a good day. On a very good day. All right. um, and, uh, and when I started rehearsals for Long Day's Journey and Tonight, and I was coughing... You know, because he has to, he has to, yeah, the character has to break exactly. Um, I actually ended up actually getting sick, like right before opening weekend. I got actually sick and developed this deep bronchial cough, which I held on to the entire show, which was a <laughs> phenomenal. I don't know how I managed, I don't know how my body managed to hold on to this crazy bronchial cough. Like, I would have doctors come up to me after the show and say, That was very convincing. Are you okay? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a real commitment. Yeah, as it was really weird. But just, I wasn't sick. It was just, just a bronchial cough, cough that, that I was able to hang on to for the entire run of the show. We ran the show for like, I think it was like a month or a month and a half or something like that. Like, and I, Every weekend, did and twice on Sundays. And here's the difference between actors and normal people, I guess, <laughs> is that most people would refer to a cough that you can't get rid of, and for you, it's a cough that you hung on to. <laughs> so, I know it makes you sound insane, doesn't it? But but at the same time, yeah, you use it, and it would work so well for the character. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. when all I had to do well, the first time when I finally like revealed the handkerchief with blood, people right. I could hear the audience go, oh, uh, oh yeah. you know, like we oh, we no. kind of figured, yeah, yeah oh, he's dying, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but I started okay. So once that show opened, like two weeks after it opened, I started rehearsals for Bat Boy, and I something had happened to my voice where I was because you know Edgar sings some really high stuff in in, in Bat Boy, and I had discovered this voice this other voice that was like higher and i could just and i and i could hit the notes 
much easier. And I didn't understand what was happening with my voice. So I, I asked several people in the theater community down there and I said, I, I'm singing this role and I'm doing this other role at night and I'm kind of, and I'm kind of nervous that I, I, that I might be hurting myself or I, because I had never been able to do that before. Now I can. I don't know what's going on. So they put me in contact with Dr. David Alt, who was a professor at University of Miami. And he said, as a donation to the theater, I will give you a private lesson to make sure that you're not doing, you're not hurting yourself. Right. Okay. That's and great. And so I was just like, oh my God, thank you so much. That's amazing. And everybody had talked about how amazing this guy is. Um, and so he, 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 he starts warming me up, you know, in the first, the first, the first class, he starts warming me up and then he starts giving me a little exercise and he said, okay, so at this part you want to do this and we want to feel this. And, and I was just able to like mimic the sound that he was, that he was telling me to, to create. And then as he's warming me up, he goes, okay, and there's your high C. And I was like, <laughs> oh, come, come again. I'm no, sorry. That's what? Impressive. what did you just, I just sang a what? And he's like, yeah, there's your high C. And then he did it. He had me do it again. And I hit the high C effortlessly. And I said, how did you, how did I d- how did I do that? How did you make me do that? Uh-huh. And he's like, he's like, well, you, you did it. You did it yourself. You know exactly where to, where to go and what to do and whatever. And I was just like, so am I a, a tenor then? <laughs> I was almost afraid to say it. You had to come out yeah, as a tenor. I was, yeah, I was, like, I was like, oh, dear God, what do my parents think? <laughs> well, I have to tell them <laughs> to I'm a tell tenor. tell everybody now. <laughs> um, and he's like, yeah, I would say you're a tenor as easy as it was for you to transition between, you know, these, he talked about the two passaggios and I was just like, whoa. So, it like happened right when I needed it to happen yeah. for Bat Boy, and I and I sang the entire run of that show, th- like, eff- like effortlessly. And have you been able to maintain that register since then? Uh, yes, I've had to use that register in several shows. So, so transitioning out of Miami, so you've worked a lot in regional theater. Um, I I used to. I mean. I worked a lot more in regional theater in South Florida because I just knew the people. When I moved out here, it was to do film and television and all, you know, that whole world. And I kind of left theater for uh, a long time. Then a couple of years, this was what, almost four years ago, I was, I was hooked up with these people who were putting on a new musical, um, that they had, you know, an original, an original musical that was kind of like improv based and very, very sketch comedy type thing. And I loved it. And I thought it was hilarious. And by a fluke, um, cast party situation. I was put in contact with the director of a director named Rick Sparks, who was the director of I love Lucy live on stage. And I auditioned for them and ended up getting cast as Ricky Ricardo on the second national tour of I love Lucy. And that was kind of my, reintroduction back into theater and okay. into that whole world and and how long did you tour with that show um i think that tour was uh 10 10 10 or 11 months now what was that like for you developing a character that is so iconic oh my god just so key to american culture uh a little nerve-wracking uh-huh. at first uh-huh. you know i mean i grew up watching him yeah, I grew I up. I grew up in, and my and I remember my parents telling my dad telling me it's like that was the first famous you know Cuban whatever, and I was just like yeah, he kind of looks like me, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so I grew and up. And was was that important to see to see somebody who looked like you on TV to see I, yourself represented? Well, here's the thing: I didn't know how important it was back then. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how rare of a thing that was back then because I didn't because I you know I was grew up watching American television and I thought I'm I'm American right because like I, I can speak English and blah blah you yeah. know I just I didn't I didn't think that like oh that guy looks like me and that's important because there's not a whole lot of that mm-hmm. you know in the in the in mainstream culture um, I didn't I didn't like really 
realize how important it was and the important work that it was to 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 represent uh you know this island in yeah. the in the caribbean you know <laughs> um but i was always proud of it i was always proud to be like yeah that's and my he my father kind of stood like that sometimes when my father would make a point he would kind of ha- he had the same kind of mas- mannerisms which are very like cuban educated man uh-huh that's the, from havana like stand a certain way even though even though uh desi was actually from santiago but um but there's just a certain like demeanor and a certain way they carry themselves it's uh so you were able to kind of bring all of that to the character of Ricky Ricardo. Uh, yeah, I brought. There's a lot that I brought of myself, and a lot that I brought of my dad, actually. <laughs> and uh, but I, wa- I mean, I, I watched every single episode that ever aired of I Love Lucy, which was obviously took me a very long time. Yeah, <laughs> and I did, and I, and I, and even as after the tour opened and we started like traveling the country i still continue to i started from beginning and worked my entire the entire way to the end do you feel obviously there is a big difference between doing an impersonation and creating a genuine character right so how did you kind of navigate that i didn't impersonate him Mm -hmm. i i I didn't uh that wasn't what i was going for because that starts to feel hokey and starts to feel uh, disingenuous Mm -hmm. and the and the audience can pick up on that but what I what I focused on more was his, like I said, like his essence, like the way that he man, the way that when he would step out on stage, and he was talking and he was at the Tropicana, he owned that stage. Yeah. And when he would sing, it was like you could hear you could like hear the panties getting wet. You know what I mean? Like there was a, there was a suave bola and a right. kind of like an ownership of the stage. And I said, that is what I need to tap into to play this character, how he owns and how comfortable he is in his skin on that stage leading his band. Did you, uh, now, had you played the congas before or did you learn them for the part? (laughs) So funny thing about the audition process for that is they wanted to see who, because um, I didn't originate the role. The role role was originated by by another actor in LA actually, um, but who did not play the congas. Uh, So they, they wanted, they wanted to incorporate that. And so part of the audition process was to see, do you have rhythm? So they gave me these two little conga drums and they gave me the pattern. And then, uh, the, the, um, the music director played and he said, just accompany him and just see if you, if you can do it. And I, I didn't, it's not like I grew up playing the congas, but I have, I have played, I have a sense of rhythm. I you know, I play the piano. I've sang in my father's church. I have an innate sense of rhythm Mm -hmm. generally. And so I just kind of copied the pattern and played along and they were like, Oh, <laughs> thank <laughs> okay. God. They have somebody who can do this. He can All do right. it, yeah. Now, what about you? What, uh, if people want to keep track of you, do you, <laughs> leaves falling on, on you. If uh, if people want to keep track of you, do you have a, a website? Do you have uh, I have a Twitter <laughs> I have feed? Instagram what? and Twitter and okay. all that stuff. I don't really have a website per se, but I, uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on Instagram as at Ureamus. Um, you can see all the all the I Love Lucy stuff, all the vampire stuff. You can see some some Nashville stuff there. Okay. Um, Twitter is just basically I just basically end up doing the same thing for all three: Twitter, Facebook, and all that because I just social media. Well. Yeah. Well, it's in some ways it's a blessing. In some ways, it's yeah. sort of a, a necessary burden. It's a, these it days. is absolutely so necessary right. for this day and age for our, uh-huh. an, an artist. But on the other hand, it allows people to sort of uh, get an audience where right. people might have been just writing in their basements before. So I, I think it's it's yeah a wonderful opportunity. But yeah. at the same time, it comes with the same pitfalls as all other media. I guess. Yeah. 
So, well, that is great. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, we will for look having. forward to kind of checking that out on, on CW Seed. Yeah. And Check that out. That's a really, it's a fun, fun musical awesome. to look at. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. <laughs> I want to thank Yell and Laura and Nicholas for talking to me. I hope you'll listen to future episodes of MusicCast, which is a production of the Foundation for New American Musicals. We are dedicated to educating, mentoring, and showcasing the next generations of creators of musicals for stage, screen, and new media. You can see new musicals, like Glass Ceilings, in the process of being created at our bi-monthly showcase, MusicHal, at Rockwell Table and Stage here in L.A. For information about how to get tickets please go to our website at fnam.us. On the website, you can subscribe to our podcast. You can also join our email list to find out about more upcoming events and other shows that we do. And you can donate. Your generous contributions will continue the Foundation's mission. So for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of MusicCast.